0: Uh, I trust that you all have had a wonderful Christmas season with your family and church friends here, and this has been a really special time for us in this year to reflect upon the glories of Christ in his advent to this earth. And we once again rehearsed the beautiful stories that we read in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and Luke chapter 1 and 2, and the Christmas stories, and we sang beautiful hymns, and we deepened our knowledge of the baby Savior born in Bethlehem. We did that from Steve's preaching, from Sunday schools, from other studies that we had. For me, the gospel of Luke has a special place in my heart. It's especially compelling to me. Uh, It's saturated, obviously, with details that we know very well, it remind us very much of the Christmas story, but it's also full of details that sometimes surprise us, and when we dig in deeper, they defy our assumptions of Christmas. And I want to just give you a quick little recap of some of that Christmas story that we've come to study this, these last several weeks here, and I hope that this will be intriguing to you before we engage in the text that we have this morning. Luke, specifically, is where we're going to be looking this morning, Luke began his gospel narrative by magnifying Jesus as the long-expected king of Israel. And obviously, Matthew does that as well. But Luke does this specifically by mentioning David, the name of David, several times in the first couple of chapters. If you turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 1 with me, Luke chapter 1. We're going to start looking at just a handful of verses here as we walk through this. Luke chapter 1, verse 27. It says in this verse here that Joseph, you'll see this in the text, Joseph is from the house of David. There's David's name. Skip down a few verses to verse 32. The angel Gabriel tells Mary, the Lord God will give to him, this will be to Jesus, will give to him the throne of his father, David. Chapter 2, verse 4. You skip ahead a couple pages. Chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph and Mary travel to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. I mean, even the fact that they were going to Bethlehem points to David. Who else was born in Bethlehem besides Jesus? David. That's why it's called the city of David. The angels speak to the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 11, that a Savior will be born whose name will be called Christ the Lord. And you'll notice in that verse there that it talks about this will happen in the city of David. There's a lot of David in the early parts of Luke. (laughs) Even the fact that the shepherds show up at the manger scene is an implicit way to signal to everyone that this is the long way to David because David, before he was a king, was a shepherd. That's right. So, Jesus needed to look like a shepherd at his birth so that it would point to David. The punchline of Luke's Christmas story is that the Davidic king has finally arrived. But it goes even deeper than that. In chapter 1, John the Baptist is highlighted Going back a little bit, verse 67, his father Zacharias glorifies God for bringing fulfillment to his promises to save his people at last. Then in verse 69, he reflects on the fact that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant and there's David again even the poetic imagery that he uses in verse 77 he talks about the sunrise from on high it communicates something really strikingly familiar strikingly similar to David's discourse at the end of his life in 2nd Samuel chapter 23 specifically in verse 4 2 Samuel 23 verse 4 communicates terminology that's very similar to verse 77 here about the sunrise from on high, which was, again, David's prayer. David is the subject of Zacharias' prayer of praise in Luke chapter 1 here. And as the introduction to John the Baptist reaches its conclusion here in chapter 1, and it is a long chapter, (laughs) there's 80 verses in this chapter, Luke summarizes John's upbringing here in verse 80, and I want you to see this. Verse 80. Now the child was growing and becoming strong in spirit that's a simple statement it's not hard to understand but it is loaded with meaning it is loaded with connections it actually hearkens the careful reader to the words spoken of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 21 where it says the child Samuel was growing up or becoming strong with Yahweh. And then in verse 26, a little bit later in 1 Samuel 2, in verse 26, it talks about Samuel again. Now the child Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with Yahweh and with men. We'll see that terminology a little bit later here in a bit. But that's the same kind of wording that we see here regarding John the Baptist in Luke 1. Verse 80, is it any wonder then that Samuel acted as the prophetic forerunner to David? He acted as the prophetic forerunner to David. He was the predecessor. He was pointing to David. And so in just the same way then, John is also a prophetic forerunner to Jesus. And he's pointing to Jesus. That's not a coincidence. Jesus is truly the long-awaited David and King of Israel, and even John's ministry proves this. We see that here. As the traditional Christmas narratives come to a close in chapter 2, which we know we we love so well, we encounter two individuals uh, that kind of seem to be out of place, I think, a little bit, or at least we may come to them thinking that that's the case, Simeon, the prophet, and Anna, the prophetess. And I want to specifically focus on this last one, Anna. Anna was a prophetess. You'll actually see this in chapter 2, verse 36. Anna was a prophetess who saw the Messiah in Jerusalem on the day that his parents came and took him to Jerusalem to offer the required sacrifices for their newborn son. And Her story almost comes to us as like an afterthought, or at least it feels like that. It's like, oh, hey, by the way, there was this woman named Anna, and she saw Jesus, and she told everyone about it, and that's all I'm going to say about it. And that's what it kind of feels like to us, but it's really important. It's really important. In fact, her name is important. In English, we call her Anna, but the Greek text is pretty clear here. You actually pronounce it Hannah right from where we get the name Anna from. And that causes us to think about Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, doesn't it? It's the other Hannah that we know in the Bible. The same Hannah who actually prayed a prayer very similar to Mary's Magnificat, right? So there's another connection tying those together. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. She was the mother of Samuel. And as we have said, John already mirrors Samuel. John the Baptist mirrors Samuel, and he points us to the Davidic king. And so here with the prophetess Anna, or or Hannah, we have another indication of the connection between Samuel's story and Jesus' story. And so with all of these connections, this now brings us to chapter 2 and verse 40. And we've arrived at the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 2, verse 40. And here another parallel statement is made, and this is certainly not an accident from Luke. Look at verse 40 with me. Now the child was growing up and becoming strong. Wow, those words should sound familiar. We just read them in chapter 1, verse 80, referring to John the Baptist, but now these words are being referred to Jesus. And he's being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. There's a connection there to John. You can see that. The words are the same. What's Luke doing here? What's he telling us? Well, now you have Jesus parallel to John, and John is parallel to Samuel. Luke wants us to see how eerily similar John and Jesus are in their upbringings. Why? Why would he do that? So that when John officially starts his ministry, it will become abundantly clear that John and Jesus go together. They go together. There is no John without Jesus. There is no John without Jesus. The point of John's ministry is um, unlike most of the prophets, actually, is that he is to be, re, to be replaced in the middle of his ministry. He's to be replaced. That's why Luke describes Jesus' upbringing in the same way so that you would understand that Jesus is going to be essentially a one-for-one replacement for John. But Luke goes further than that because it's not just a one-for-one replacement that we got here. Luke also portrays him here in verse 40 as being filled with wisdom and the grace of God being upon him. Not exactly exact terms that are used of John back in verse 80 of chapter 1. So Jesus is not just taking over for John in his ministry like a one-for-one replacement. He's not just a new John or another John And he's not just a new David or another David. He's advancing the ministry of John. And he's advancing the kingship of David. And he embodies this wisdom and this grace that compels us to consider another individual. When you think of wisdom, you should be thinking of Solomon. Solomon. And that's intentional here. So now you have a a young boy here who's modeling the best of David and the best of Solomon in one person. Now you've got someone who's advanced this. And quickly in two chapters, Luke has compiled a comprehensive case that God is about ready to execute his part of the Davidic covenant. He's about ready to make his part of the Davidic covenant happen. The king is here. He's finally arrived. He's a new David, or you could say he's an advanced David. He's a better Solomon. He outshines Samuel and even John. And he has the grace of God upon him. The grace of God upon him, which gives this connotation of the fact that there is some kind of a a divine power, a divine nature upon him just like what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. We already mentioned this a little bit, but Gabriel says, this one will be great and he will be called son of the most high. He's going to be called son of the most high. And he says later on, a few verses later, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and power will overshadow you from the most high. For that reason, the one, the the Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God and Son of Most High. This is majestic. These are divine titles. This is not just a better human version of David. This is the long-awaited Emmanuel. God with us in human form. And at this point, we might think that Luke will go ahead and just introduce then the ministry of Jesus, the majestic ministry of Jesus, like Matthew does. He just kind of starts engaging into it. Or like Mark quickly gets into the ministry of Jesus right away. We might expect that Luke would do that at this juncture here. But Luke does something different here than the other gospel writers do. And he has a reason for doing this. Luke inserts a story here that without its account of it, we would have no way of really knowing that it ever happened. And it's the only story in the Bible of Jesus that we have essentially between the age of his infancy and the age of 30 years old when he started his ministry. That's interesting. It's a long span of time, and we've got one little snapshot story of Jesus right there. And it's the story of Jesus at 12 years old when he was left at the temple in Jerusalem. Now you know the Christmas story really well. Well, this I like to call the post-Christmas story. I like to call this the post-Christmas story. And I think now that we've set a foundation in the context of Luke's gospel, I think we're ready to engage this passage together. And to give you some structure as we walk through this story, I'm going to give you seven simple but really critical points as we go along. And really, they're going to act like observations as we walk through the text. And I'll give you the first one in a moment. But the point of this text, I'm not going to kind of reveal right off the bat, like here's the main point you need to pull out of this. We're going to see that as we go along and I think it'll become really clear. I don't want to give too much away because there's a lot of fun surprises here. But let's look at it together. Luke chapter 2. Let's start in verse 41. Verse 41. Now his parents were going by year to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Now we'll stop right there. Verse 41 is inviting us into the annual tradition of Jesus's earthly family. Every year they would travel to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, just like the law commanded that they do. Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 through 17, specifically if you're taking notes, and Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 8, talk about this, that they are commanded to go for the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, which would be the seven days that immediately followed the night of the Passover. And so that's really our first observation this morning, and we'll simply call it the feast. The feast. And the feast is Passover, yes? That's our first observation. This is happening at Passover. And that's not a trivial note given to us by Luke. Everything Luke writes here, in his whole gospel, but especially in this story we see this, it's really important information. And we've got to ask why. Why is this here? What what is this doing here? Passover, as you may recall, was a memorial of the event in which God put to death every firstborn male in Egypt. But he passed over, and that's where we get the word Passover from, he passed over the Israelite houses that had been stained with the blood of a lamb, on their doorposts. And you have to understand, the Passover event is all about redemption. It's all about redemption. God redeemed his people from his own wrath on that night by bypassing them. This is actually the same kind of redemption and salvation terminology that Luke has been recalling Throughout the Christmas story, if you've been paying close attention when you do your annual readings in the Luke narrative, you will see this. Mary called God her Savior in chapter 1, verse 47. Zacharias spoke of redemption in chapter 1, verse 68, and the knowledge of salvation in verse 77. And Simeon recounts how his eyes finally saw the salvation of God in chapter 2, verse 30. The fact that this event is happening at Passover is of no coincidence to Luke. He's telling us something about redemption. He's telling us something about redemption. And as we tie in the other observations, I think it'll be even clearer what that means for this unique moment in Jesus' life. So we're going to hold it right there for a second. You'll see it in a little bit. That's the feast. That's our observation number one, the feast. And let's continue in verse 42. Verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, stop right there, hold on hold on. When he was 12 years old, there's no way that Luke mentions Jesus's age without it being significant. When do biblical writers mention somebody's name in an event? We don't usually hear that. This is really important. So this leads us to our second observation, Jesus's age. Jesus's age. And of course, the age is 12. We need to think a little bit about the age of 12. Why is that important? And in this case, Jewish custom helps us tremendously because you've heard of the bar mitzvah, yes? It's the celebration when a young Jewish boy enters into adulthood. bar mitzvah is actually an Aramaic phrase. It's not Hebrew. Hebrew and Aramaic are very similar to one another. Uh, In fact, the word mitzvah is the word commandment, and it's exactly the same in Hebrew and in Aramaic. But the word ben is the word for son in Hebrew, but the word bar is the word for son in Aramaic. And so this phrase, bar mitzvah, is Aramaic, and it means son of the commandment, son of the commandment. And in this way, the boy who's having a bar mitzvah is being ushered into accountability under the law. That's why it's called a bar mitzvah, son of the commandment, because it's ushering him under the law or under the commandment. Essentially, it's declaring him to be an adult, fully responsible to the law of Israel. And the bar mitzvah takes place at the age of 13. In fact, it should happen on the birthday, his 13th birthday. And so that's why the age of 13 is really considered that threshold, for when a child becomes an adult in Jewish culture. But Luke mentions that he's 12. So you're like, that doesn't matter to your point. No, but it does matter. It's actually really important because, you see, Luke just mentioned that Jesus' family would travel once a year, at least the whole family. Joseph probably traveled three times a year because that's what was required of him as a male, as a a male who leads his family, he traveled three times a year for three different feasts, but at least the whole family would travel once a year for Passover to Jerusalem. And so I don't want to give too much away at this juncture, but what is critical for you to know at this point is that Jesus must be present in Jerusalem by the day of his 13th birthday. You understand? He's got to be present by the day of his 13th birthday. So if he doesn't stay in Jerusalem on this trip, he will miss the opportunity to be there on his 13th birthday. Unless he was born on Passover, but that's very likely not the case. If he doesn't stay in Jerusalem, he will miss the opportunity to be there when he becomes an adult. So important. It's... Not a coincidence that Luke mentions this, and it will play a significant role later, but let's continue in verse 42. So it says when he was 12 years old, they were going up according to the custom of the feast, okay? So the family is making the trek from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. They're gathering their relatives and their acquaintances and the family that they know, and they probably extended family and so forth, and they're making a trek from Galilee to Jerusalem on this really 12th year of Jesus' life. And so then verse 43, and after they completed the days of the feast, which would be the, the, the day of Passover and then the seven days following for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they were there for over a week at least. While they were returning, Jesus, the boy, remained in Jerusalem. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. As they returned, Jesus remained. Now, pay close attention to what Jesus is doing here, because earlier in the sermon, I mentioned that Jesus was left behind, but I said that intentionally because I wanted to communicate it in a way that we're accustomed to sometimes thinking about this story, or at least I was accustomed to thinking about the story when I was a child. I was like, wow, what negligent parents. They left him behind. And I think I was even taught that once in a Sunday school. And we sometimes think of the story as the lost child story, something which we might even be able to relate with personally with our own families. Like when I was six years old, I got lost for like 60 seconds in a mall, and I freaked out for 60 seconds. It wasn't that bad, uh, but I freaked out. I remember my brother, when he was around six or seven, too, actually, he got lost in an airport for like half an hour to an hour. That was kind of scary. We were in uh, Spokane, Washington at the time. And as scared as a child would be under circumstances like that, the parents are usually just as terrified, perhaps even more terrified. You know, it's the home alone feeling. Kevin, right? (laughs) Yeah, you guys all watched that during the Christmas. I know you did. We did, too but that's, that's not what's going on here in this story. It wasn't primarily the fault of forgetful parents, although that could have contributed to their ignorance, right? Obviously. I mean, if you look at the end of verse 43 here, it says, and his parents didn't know. Verse 44, that but supposing him to be in the caravan, they went about a day's journey and they were seeking for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. I mean, it's true. Perhaps they could have been a little bit more careful in keeping track of Jesus. But he was almost an adult by Jewish law. He probably was remarkably responsible for his age, given who he was. They probably had little reason to worry about him. Yes? Just put it yourself in those shoes. What's most important is the verb here, though, that's used with Jesus. He stayed behind. That's intentionality. That's Jesus' decision. Luke does not say, and his parents left him behind. Luke is very careful with what he says here. This is observation number three, Jesus' decision. Jesus' decision. Jesus stayed behind. Okay. And his parents were blissfully unaware of it. It's the classic, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Right? So as they reach the end of that first day of travel back to Galilee, they haven't seen him for the whole day. It just almost makes me laugh because it's just like you can imagine a scenario like this. And so, they began to search for him among the relatives and this whole caravan of people that are going back to Galilee. You know, they obviously thought he was among them. He was with them during the whole feast, right? In verse 45, verse 45, and it says, Not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking for him. Now, you have to understand, they just traveled a full day's walk away from Jerusalem. So this is at night. That they're finally realizing he's not there. (laughs) So, probably, in order to regather their strength, they probably spent a short, restless night where the caravan was lodging that night. And then they got up early in the morning, probably really early in the morning, and they started traveling another full day's walk just to get back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? No cell phones no calling the cops, right? It's like it's not nothing like that. No car to get you there. This is spending a significant amount of Joseph and Mary's energy, their time, and their money, let alone the mental anguish that they were under for losing their boy. And the word here that, that is used in verse 45, to seek or to search, It's really a kind of an intense word. It takes the normal word in Greek that you would say to search for something and it adds an intensifier on the front of it to be like really searching for him. It's kind of like the idiom that we use where you search something up and down. That's kind of the idea here. It's actually the word that's used to describe of searching for criminals and fugitives, (laughs) which you would search up and down for a criminal or for a fugitive, searching under every rock, exhausting every nook and cranny. So then verse 46, it says, And it happened after three days, they found him. Now, we'll stop there for a second. Let's count the days, just to kind of understand what Luke's doing here. One day leaving Jerusalem. Yes, a full day. Then you have a short, restless night where they're lodging, and then they probably depart from Jerusalem most of the caravan, maybe some of them went with them, I don't know. And then they took another full day, t- day two, all the way to get back to Jerusalem, probably arrived right at night. And then the third day is when they actually find him. Someday, sometime in the middle of the third day. That's probably how Luke is actually counting these days. And I, you can really envision a really good movie out of this, which is amazing. This would be like Home Alone, part 12. Uh, you can imagine... Mary's awake at night, right, worried, wondering whether she'll ever see him again. And then on the third day, the dawn breaks. There's a new morning, new opportunities, new discoveries. And then the climax of the film, right? There he is. They find him. Their eyes lock. Right. He's there. We found him. The end, right? But that's, that's not Luke's point of this story. It doesn't end here. And there's so much more. So verse 46 says, they found him in the temple area. By the way, there's two different words for temple in Greek. One is the actual building itself and the other one is the actual temple area. This is the temple area, obviously. No one's going to be inside the building itself. Uh, So they found him in the temple area sitting in the midst of the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions now, this is really intriguing you have a boy not quite yet an adult who's engaging with the smartest men in Israel and moreover he's not only fully engaged in what they have to say he's asking them some pretty pointed questions and the reason why i say that is because the word that's used for ask here he was asking them questions is another one of those words where you take the casual word for ask in Greek and you add an intensive to the front of that word. And so it's kind of like he's acting them, he's asking them these direct questions, these pointed questions. And so then verse 47 says, Now all who were hearing him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So not only was Jesus I would argue, sitting among teachers. But actually, the way that Luke phrases this is that very likely there are a lot of people that have come gathering to hear this. And that would have been common at that point. They would have done this probably annually where you have all these people from all over Israel coming to Jerusalem, right, for the Passover. Some stayed a few days later, and that's why you have this situation here. But you have people gathered around, and they would love to hear these sages hash out these difficult queries or riddles or issues of the law of Yahweh. And so that's why Luke doesn't simply say, the teachers were astonished. Did you notice that in the text? Verse 47, doesn't say the teachers were astonished. It says all who were hearing him. So very likely, Luke is being very careful in his terminology that Jesus is not just impressing the teachers, that it's just he and the teachers there, but that there are actually people gathered around and they're listening in and they're all like, wow, this is amazing. Like he has insight. He has this wisdom. And he not only can ask really good questions to these teachers, but then he can answer them arguably better than the teachers can i think that's what luke is implying and so here at this point we see the wisdom that remember the wisdom that we saw back in verse 40 kind of kicked off this passage now we see this wisdom fleshing itself out into our story and so we come to our fourth observation Jesus' wisdom. Jesus' wisdom. And in this wisdom, Jesus is modeling Solomon. He's modeling Solomon. One, he's wise, very wise. And he's wiser than the people around him, which is incredible given his age. And then two, he's where? In the temple. And who built the first temple? Solomon. This is a picture of Solomon. It actually sounds a lot like 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 28. You know after the story of the two women and Solomon offers the idea of cutting the baby in half and then it reveals who the true mother is, His brilliant plan, right? 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 28 says, then all this, this is the summary of this, all Israel heard that judgment which the king had made and they were afraid before the king because they saw that the wisdom of god was in him to to do justice to make a judgment jesus is embodying solomon and all of his wisdom in this moment here and he's only 12 years old now hold on to that thought because we'll see that in a moment but look at verse 48 and this is where it starts to get really good this is incredible And seeing him, and that would be by implication his parents. His parents, when they saw him, they were amazed. Or your translation may casually say shocked. (laughs) This is observation number five. It's the shock. (laughs) The shock. Now, you got to recognize this is easy to do, but it's easy to think that the astonishment that the parents have, is the same astonishment that the leaders have or the people that are listening to him have. Uh, Jesus is so wise. He's so intelligent. So his parents come like, wow, he's answering so many great questions. This is great. That's not why they're shocked. This is not why they're shocked. His parents weren't really there to, to listen to the three days of um, discussion that had transpired over that time. And in fact, the word that's used here for astonished for the parents in verse 48 is actually different than the word that's used for astonished in verse 47 for the the people that were surrounding jesus this word here in verse 48 referring to the parents has this word it it has this idea to mean flabbergasted uh overwhelmed uh, put out of one's mind (laughs) that's kind of interesting In reality, really the context here, how Mary responds actually tells us what is meant by them being shocked. She doesn't immediately say, oh, Jesus, we are so sorry. We had no idea. You are so wise. You are so intelligent. That's not what she says. No, this response from Mary is a mother's heart that feels betrayed. You'll see this. Look at verse 48. His mother said to him, Child, ah, you know you're in trouble when you're called child. Why did you do this to us? Or you could translate it, why have you acted in this way to us? Behold, your father and I we're seeking for you. And the word in Greek is painfully. If we're going to go very literal here, this is painful. Do you know how much stress you've put on us? You have overstepped your bounds, Jesus. You have treated us terribly. Do you realize how hard we have searched for you? Do you know how much money that we've spent to get back here? Do you know how much money it's going to take to get back to Galilee now? Do you know how much work that Joseph has lost? I'm kind of curious, though. Why does Mary know at this point that Jesus has done this to them? What if this was, like, their fault? How does she know? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you found me. I've just been sitting here, you know, engaging these people with these questions and things like that. But, wow, I'm ready to go home. How does she know this? Well, it's really simple. Just put yourself in the mother's shoes. You finally find your lost child. You finally find him. And he's not looking for you. Oh. We've been seeking for you. But Jesus is not seeking for them. That's heartbreaking to a mother, I think. I would imagine that there were feelings of betrayal and maybe some sadness, maybe even a little bit of anger that precipitated her response here. Why did you act this way to us? Why did you do this to us? Behold, your father. Stop right there. Your father. This is the most important part of the story right here. This is it right here. Your father. Who is she referring to? It's Joseph. He's right next to her. Yes? Your father and I. This is observation number six. Mary's claim. Mary's claim. Mary's claim is that Joseph is Jesus' father. Joseph is Jesus' father. And this is Jesus' response, and it's jaw-dropping. Verse 49, And he said to them, Why were you seeking for me? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You put yourself in a scenario like that, under normal circumstances, you're searching for your child for three days, you can't find him, you finally do find him, and then he says, Why were you seeking for me? You'd be like, Come here. I'll give you why we were seeking for you. You can imagine what's going through Mary's mind as he's responding. Shame on you for asking such an obvious question. Why were we seeking for you? are your parents? I mean, you're acting in a rebellious way to ask such an obvious question. And notice how even that question mirrors Mary's question. Why did you do this to us? Why were you seeking for me? It's almost like he's throwing their question back in there face what is he doing here what kind of example is he giving to our children here but this intentionally heightens the drama and the climactic moment comes in jesus's next words in verse 49 look at this did you not know that I had to be among or in my father's house. Now, literally, it actually says, did you not know that I had to be among my father's things? But by implication, that includes the temple and my father's house and so forth. But now I want you to listen really carefully to what Jesus just said. This is an important connection that Jesus is making and Luke is bringing out here. He says, did you not know that I had to be in... My father's house. My father. Mary just said, your father and I. And Jesus basically says, Joseph's not my father. God is my father. That's what he's saying to her. This is observation number seven. It's Jesus's claim. Jesus's claim which is in contrast to Mary's claim. Mary's claim is that Joseph is Jesus' father, and Jesus' claim is very simple. God is my father. God is my father. Now, what was once seen as the height of arrogance and rebellion is now completely reversed into a legitimate claim that Jesus is making. And here's the thing. The claim is warranted, and Mary especially knew it. Because Jesus said to Joseph, did you not know? Did you not know? Now, that word, did you not know, or the, the knowing word, yes? That word is in a, this is going to sound so nerdy, this is in a pluperfect tense, oh. Like, don't even try to spell it, okay? That's not, that's not the point anyways. The, the point is that the pluperfect, it's a, really a fancy way to say, had you not known. And I use very specifically that word had, past tense had. Had you not known. The word had is the pluperfect part of that word. It's bringing out the pluperfect aspect of it. Had you not known. In other words, you had known it, And now you have forgotten it. When did Mary know that Jesus was God's son? We already saw it. It was from the announcement made to her 12 years prior by Gabriel. In chapter 1, verse 32, this one will be son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So that means he's equal with God, he's the son of God, and Mary knows this. He is son of the Most High, and then not only that, not only is he equal to God, but then he's also the one who's going to inherit the throne of his father David, so that means that he must be in where? Jerusalem. Mary should have totally understood this. And in this way, Jesus would be then fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He would actually be fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He's doing that right now as he's there in Jerusalem, and he's making this majestic claim to deity. He says, God is my father. And in that way, he's basically making a direct connection to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14 says, I will be a father to him, God says, I will be a father to your son, David, and he will be... Excuse me, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. You see how Jesus is now fulfilling that with his statement. God is my father. So you can now see how Luke has been really setting up Jesus as the true David, not only through the Christmas story, but even into this story here. And now Jesus sits there embodying Solomon. Solomon as we talked about earlier, as the better and wiser fulfillment of David's son. Because the Davidic covenant is all about a son of yours will sit on the throne and you know presumably that would have been Solomon. But now we recognize it's future kings down the line until finally Jesus arrives and he is now fulfilling that as the better Solomon, the wiser Solomon, and he's picturing that here in the temple. This is Jesus' claim. He is not only David's son, he is God's son. He is God's son. He is divine. He is fulfilling the Davidic covenant, and he must be in Jerusalem. In fact, that's what he says here in verse 49. I must be in my father's house. I must be here. This word must, oh, it's such an important word. And I wish we had a whole nother sermon we could just talk about just this point right here, but we don't have time for this. But basically, the word must is also can be translated, it is necessary, might see it as the word must, or I have to be, or it is necessary. And this is a key word that Luke uses all throughout his gospel. It's really cool. You should find them all. You should go like look them up, you know, use a Bible software program and find all of them. Because they really act as like segments of like different scenes and different acts in the stories of Luke. Here's Act 1, here's Act 2, and and it's kind of defined around this, it is necessary, this must be the case, it has this divine imperative, this has got to be the case because God has said so. This is a critical moment, this must be the case. And he doesn't do, do that only in Luke, he also does it in Acts, his second part. So he really does tie it all together. And really in this first moment here, this is actually the first moment here that this word appears in Luke's gospel. This is the first one. This is basically the end of the first act of the gospel of Luke. And the punchline of this whole section here, this first act, is that Jesus is God's son, and he must be in Jerusalem as the Davidic king. He must. What a legitimate claim he's making. His parents should have known. They should have known. They should have remembered. And if that's the most powerful, impactful moment maybe of this story, then what comes next is the most endearing. This is incredible. And it's the most tender. Verse 50. And they did not understand the word which he spoke to them. It didn't click. They didn't get it. I mean, you can even contrast their lack of understanding with his incredible wisdom and understanding with the teachers and the people there. But even so, they didn't know. And so they just took him home. They took the Son of God home with them. But they didn't take him home kicking and screaming and this is this is the endearing part this is the tender part this is the beauty of this passage because we've already witnessed the magnificent claim to deity that he's made this is powerful this is the exalted son of god here before us but after he lays claim to it he doesn't insist upon it whoa Even though it's still so true. His parents didn't have to drag him home, they didn't have to force him. In fact, verse 51 says, And he went down with them. He went down with them. And he came to Nazareth, and he was subjecting himself to them. Just as much as Jesus acted to stay behind in Jerusalem, so with that same intentionality, he returned home with, him, with them on his own initiative. He was not forced. His parents didn't have to seize him. They didn't have to grab him. He voluntarily went down. Why? Why would he do that? doesn't that strike against his divine right? Or even rather what he said, his need. This is a divine imperative. I need to be here in Jerusalem. It's the same word that says the son of man must suffer and die. That's later on spoken in Luke. This must take place. It's a divine imperative. You can't Get out of that. Is he rebelling against God by doing this? Is he defying the divine will? No. He voluntarily submits himself. Why? Because Luke wants us to understand, and this is so important. This is kind of the whole point of the passage. So you really should wake up if you're asleep right now. This is the whole point. Luke wants us to understand that the path to the Davidic throne for the Son of God must begin with a life lived as the Son of Man. That's the point. And that's really the first song that we sung this morning. The Son of Man and those themes. This is exactly what Luke is recognizing from this account of Jesus Luke wants us to understand that the path to the Davidic throne for the Son of God must begin with a life lived as the Son of Man. He must be man. And by being man, he's going to put up with and forbear all the lack of faith that people will have along his ministry journey, and that even includes the lack of faith of his parents, Only then can he truly represent their weaknesses and provide a way to redeem them and then enable them to be what God has called them to be. That's why Passover is so significant here. That's why it happens at Passover. He came at the right time on Passover because Passover is marked by redemption. Something which... Jesus was intent on fulfilling, so intent on fulfilling that, that even if it meant submitting himself to parents who were no longer really had any earthly claim to him, he would do it. This is the tender aspect of Jesus that we don't expect from this passage. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? We expect that once God has his son in the right place, it's definitive. It can't be undone. This is the will of God. It's a necessary thing. He will stay there. It's a divine ought. But what's incredible about God's plans is that they're not simplistic, like sometimes we envision them being. They're sometimes multidimensional and sometimes beyond our comprehension. And this passage reveals how he bore with our unbelief so that his son would not only lay claim to the throne, even though he will and he deserves to, but so that he would then, along the way, rescue ignorant and faithless people like you and me. He subjected himself to his earthly parents, well, simply bearing with their unbelief. Because they couldn't face the reality of his identity at that moment. Even though they were already informed of it. And he submitted to them for 18 more years. Wow! What patience! He did this as an adult. And he didn't have to stay subjected to them. I mean, one, God is his father. So by nature, this is just true. He doesn't need to subject himself to them. But Even more so, now that he was turning, essentially in that year, in that calendar year, 13 years old, he was becoming an adult. And so they really had no more earthly claim upon him. And if he can submit like that, when he doesn't have to, wow, then what an example for our children, And what a day for me to choose to preach this sermon, because half of them aren't even here right now. (laughs) But thankfully, there's a recording, so there you go. But in all seriousness, this, this applies to our children, certainly. But it applies to us as well, doesn't it? Because if Jesus, who had no obligation to submit to sinful parents, he could submit to them for 18 more years without exercising his right as the Son of God, then it's a little shameful for us, isn't it, when we rebel against authorities in our own lives that God has put there? Government or employers or church leaders we struggled to submit? Jesus puts us to shame by his example here. You need to be captivated by the beauty of what Christ did here on this important day in Jerusalem. I, I think it's very inspiring for us to do the same. The second half of verse 51 says his mother was, this is beautiful, but his mother was treasuring all these things, all these words. Actually literally used the word spoken words. She was treasuring all these words in her heart. And so now we know where Luke got probably the material for this story, yeah? Just like chapter two, verse 19 said that Mary was pondering these things in her heart. She probably pondered these things for decades. So they stuck in her, in her mind. She rehearsed them over and over again. She didn't forget what was said. And Luke, the great investigator, right? The great reporter. (laughs) He probably interviewed Mary directly. Got this story. None of the other gospel writers had that opportunity, but Luke did. Verse 52, verse 52 says, And Jesus was progressing in wisdom and in stature, or you could say maturity. And your translation may say, and in favor with God and with men. But that word favor is that word grace again. It's that word grace. In the grace with God and men. Remember how in verse 40 the grace of God was upon him? It's kind of acting like bookends to the story. The grace of God was upon him. And that grace of God had this divine feel, right? This divine nature. This this deity. He is God's son. The grace of God was upon him. Then verse 52. He's not only finding grace with God, but with men. You see how things have changed? He's now chosen after this story. He's now chosen a life committed to being both son of God and son of man. And thereby, he submits to divine authority and to human authority. Wow. His patient submission to God and to man becomes the way for God's will and this is going to sound kind of crazy at first, but and man's rebellious will to coexist together. You're like, well, Why would you want that? Man's rebellious will, sh- will shouldn't coexist with God's will. Yeah, but it needs to coexist long enough so that rebellious man can be redeemed. That's why. That's why there's this patient submission of Jesus for 18 more years to be the son of man. And in this way, Jesus actually fulfills Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3. Let loving kindness and truth not depart from you. Bind them around your neck, Solomon says. Write them on the tablet of your heart, verse 4 of Proverbs 3 says. And so find favor, but that's actually the same word here for grace. So find grace and good understanding or, or good wisdom in the eyes of God and man. You hear that? In the eyes of God and man. That's coming That's exactly what we saw in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. If Jesus then is fulfilling Proverbs 3 here, and Solomon wrote Proverbs 3, and really Proverbs is the reflection of Solomon in general, then we see that Jesus really took Solomon's words to another level that Solomon could never do, but he wanted to. And so he becomes a better Solomon and actually embodies it in this moment. Solomon said it, Jesus did it. Jesus is is the true fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I hope you can see that now. He became what we should have been. And because of that, he has redeemed us from our rebellion so that we may learn to walk in beautiful submission to God just like he did. That is the post-Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your word. It is incredible to see how careful each word is used in scripture because it can communicate something so powerful when we understand it. There's not a word that is a mistake. Everything matters, and we see that here in, your, in this text. And we marvel at the Son of God who fulfilled the Davidic covenant, that you said of the Davidic heir, you would be a father to him and he would be a son to you and he would be the exalted divine king of Israel and do what no king has ever done and bring to full fulfillment the Davidic promises. But then at the same time, the beauty of this passage, and it really becomes the point of Luke's gospel throughout the gospel, is that to be the Son of God on this earth, to to demonstrate that in your identity and who you are, you also understood from the plan of God that you were to walk this road as the Son of Man so that you would represent us and so that you would redeem us for there is no redemption of man without representation. Thank you that that is so. And thank you for this beautiful story that you have brought to our attention through Luke's writing. It really adds a a beautiful bow to the Christmas story. And we love it because of that. We pray that we would give you all the worship as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen.